One of the honorable mentions this year in the John Lyman Book Prize was James Lindgren and his book, Preserving Maritime America. I had the opportunity to interview James Lindgren over the course of two days while he discussed six of the great maritime museums across this nation. We've decided to break this interview up into six separate parts, talking about each of those individual institutions. On this part one, we get the introduction, the overview of the book, and a discussion on the East India Marine Society of Salem on the NASO video podcast. North American Society for Oceanic History was created by maritime scholars who met in 1971 at the University of Maine. They recognized that in North America there was no forum for maritime history or a society devoted to the study and promotion of maritime history. The aim of the original group of organizers was to create a diverse organization based initially on Canadian and American membership, which would gain the interest of others. Now there are members worldwide. And it is this diversity of membership that continues to make NASO a truly unique organization. 2020 marked the first year in recent memory that NASA was unable to meet, and therefore we bring historians, archaeologists, and students who are scheduled to present. Welcome to the North American Society for Oceanic History video podcast. I'm your host, Sal Mercagliano. The goal of the NASO video podcast is to bring you some of the best historians, professionals, and up-and-comers in the field of maritime history. Today, we're heading to upstate New York and being joined by James Lindgren, he is the honorable mention this year in the John Lyman Book Prize in United States Maritime History for his book, Preserving Maritime America, a Cultural History of the Na Nation's Great Maritime Museums. Dr. Lingren is a professor of history at State University of New York, Plattsburgh. Welcome, James, to the NASO Video and Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you. We have not uh, been uh, up uh, to upstate New York. We've seen be, we've seen to be focusing in uh, on the Gulf Coast because our conference this year was scheduled uh, in Pensacola. So it, it, it's great to get a little bit of diversity into our group by heading into upstate New York. I'm from right. New York City. I'm from New yeah. York City myself. So this is like Canada, Plattsburgh to me. So yeah, if I might add, Plattsburgh is on Lake Champlain, and Lake Champlain was often called the Sixth Great Lake. It's actually in congressional legislation listed as such, but a congressman from Ohio kind of uh, scoffed at the idea because he said Lake Champlain doesn't even have fog horns, so how could it be a great lake? But anyway, <laughs> it's 100 miles long of beautiful water, and Plattsburgh is right there located on that body of water. Oh, it's beautiful. And like I said, uh, it's, it's, I think that was just pure Great Lake snobbery right there from, uh, from, from somebody on Erie. But anyway, so uh, we're here today to talk about your book, which was, I got to say, I enjoyed it immensely. I'm, I'm a, a huge proponent of, of material culture and maritime museums are, are some of my favorite. And, and you hit a good many of my favorite ones I've been to. So I, I thought maybe first we'll talk about why you decided to uh, uh, delve into this topic of maritime museums, and you take a very unique uh, approach to it, because it's, it's not just a discussion about six maritime museums, you're talking about the maritime culture of the United States. So right. I, I'll leave it to you to, to introduce your topic. Okay, you know, the idea goes back to 1980. I was a PhD graduate student at the College of William and Mary, and I had a seminar with William Appleman Williams, and at the time, uh, Bill was president of the Organization of American Historians, 
he was perhaps the dean of revisionist foreign policy historians. I was thrilled to have a seminar with him. But he got tired of uh, talking about foreign policy and he wanted to talk about maritime history. Uh, Bill was a graduate of the Naval Academy at Annapolis and uh, he had a habit of making points by knocking his Annapolis ring on his finger on the table and you hear the click 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 as he made his point. A, but classic, book, ring, a classic ring knocker right there. That's, that's the, right. the phrase. He's a ring knocker and he, he was a, it's a charming kind of guy, talked like a sailor at times, very earthy. But again, I began this, this project with a seminar paper on a couple of museums, uh, Mariner's Museum and East Indian Marine Society of Salem. But the seminar paper, again, kind of sat for a while. Uh, Bill, uh, uh, again, suggested that instead of following foreign policy, I go into cultural history. And cultural history, uh, as it was defined back then as a learning, is a combination of society, politics, way of life, economy, and foreign policy. So it was a broad definition of maritime, and that suited my fancy pretty much. But uh, the, the project sat on the back burner for years because I had uh, two other projects, two other books uh, to finish. My dissertation uh, created, first of all, Preserving the Old Dominion, uh, Historic Preservation of Virginia Traditionalism uh, in 1993, published by uh, Virginia. And in 1995, Oxford published uh, another book called Preserving Historic New England, New England uh, Pres uh, Progressivism, Preservation, and the Remaking of Memory. Uh, those two books pretty much established me as a, again, uh, an up-and-coming scholar of public history, material culture, and how it all related to this broad definition of culture as I defined it. Uh, I got into preserving maritime America pretty much in the middle 90s and after. And uh, if people look at the book, they realize it's six chapters. But essentially, I could have written a book on each of those chapters. Uh, the, the research began essentially in the middle 90s, and here we are, 2020. And so uh, essentially 25 years of solid research and writing to, uh, to create this, this book and a lot of travel. And as you suggested earlier, I'm up in remote uh, upstate New York and getting to San Francisco or getting to Southside Virginia, getting anywhere is often difficult. So a lot of miles, a lot of time and a lot of preparation was involved here. But uh, the book, as I mentioned, six museums, I had originally intended to come out with this book, Preserving Maritime America, right after the other two, Preserving the Old Dominion and Preserving Historic New England. But I had to change my schedule because one of my museums, South Street Seaport, in the early 20th, 21st century, was about to go under. Uh, this is after, again, um, 9-11 obviously in 2001 uh, destroyed much of the economy of lower Manhattan. Uh, the museum was foundering, okay. Uh, what happened also was again, there was a leadership crisis there. And as uh, again, South Street Seaport is, as many know, is right there on the East River. And it's an historic uh, block, a section, 10 blocks of uh, lower east side, 
uh, you're near Wall Street. The leadership crisis led to, you know, again, the, the museum being in peril. And what followed after that, obviously, was Superstorm super storm Sandy, which some call historic Hurricane Sandy. But by the time it hit Manhattan, it was just just seven or eight feet of water covering the lower part of the, of the island. And so what happened was friends of South Street asked me, begged me at times, well, tell the story of the museum. We need to know just so we can line up our friends. And so as a result, I changed my batting order. And instead of putting Preserving Maritime America out first, what I did was create Preserving South Street Seaport. Uh, that book came out in 2014 with NYU Press. And it really helped tell the story of how this museum was again established in 66, 1967, but had been a unique contributor to historic preservation, maritime preservation, all the while in the last 50 or so years. So what occurred was Preserving South Street Seaport came out in 2014, and then I could turn my focus to Preserving Maritime America which came out uh, at the very tail 2019 with UMass Press. Uh, that's where I'm at now. And unfortunately for us all, uh, COVID-19 has uh, racked the nation. Uh, I, again, am hurt by the, the human suffering that it's caused. The fact that my book has been kind of lost in the shuffle is just a very minor matter compared to the national tragedy, the international tragedy that we all face. So uh, the book is, is out there and I'm happy with any opportunity to talk about it as is the case uh, today with you, Sal. Well, Jim, I appreciate that introduction. I think it's a great way to kind of set us up for it. So I thought we'd just run chronologically through your book and talk about each of the six museums you looked at. We, we talked about South Street Seaport, which is at the end. We'll come back to that. But okay. let's jump off here and talk about uh, uh, the East India Marine Society of Salem, which I think is a very unique organization. Yeah, I was intrigued by it when I first came across it. Uh, the East India Marine Society is actually goes back to 1799. And it's the oldest continuing museum in the United States. It was started by a band of uh, merchant mariners and supercargoes. Supercargoes super are the businessmen who went aboard these ships as they traveled across the globe. And uh, they opened up distant markets in the 1780s and 90s. As many of your uh, readers and watchers know, after the American independence in 1783, the United States was cut off from its uh, past access to the British Empire. And so merchants and master mariners in Salem and Boston and New York had to establish new markets. And so uh, a New York ship was the first to open up China, but the Bostonians and Salemites quickly followed thereafter. And um, one of the first is again, uh, a family in Darby. And the Darbys were Elias, Elias Haskett Darby was again the, the leader of this clan, and he was ambitious to his core. And so he would again open up uh, 
the Baltic Sea uh, with St. Petersburg in Russia. He would again be the first of the Salemites, New Englanders, to cross Cape of Good Hope and get to Mauritius, get to India, get to what now is Indonesia. And uh, all that was driven by his quest for markets, for, again, the economic uh, wherewithal to uh, improve the New England economy, improve his fortune. He was, <clears throat> some would say he was the first American millionaire. Uh, you know, a lot of us go back to John Jacob Astor. You know, Sal, you're from the city, and the story about John Jacob Astor was that he was the first millionaire, and he made his money through real estate. Well, Elias Haskett Darby made his money, his millions, through, again, this foreign trade. And Salem and Boston were in a particular uh, crisis because as, as, again, the 1780s developed, uh, the economy had fallen flat on its face with the closure of the British markets. Daniel Shays mounted his rebellion in 1786-87. And there was a crisis. And the crisis led to this realization that somehow wealth had to be introduced into the uh, New England economy. Uh, Darby, again, did, did this exploration for his own gain, but also for the gain of the merchant class, the leadership class of, of New England. Uh, when you think of the New Englanders who followed in the 1790s and the first years of the 1800s, particularly during the so-called French War, uh, New Englanders carved out a global empire. Uh, during the French War, you know, again, uh, in 1789, uh, France went through the revolution. In 1793, France invaded Belgium. And from 1793, essentially through 1815, England and France battled not only for uh, continental European supremacy, but also for global supremacy. And the United States, Darby and his kin, the United States found cracks in the British, the French, the Dutch empires, which they uh, again won trade through. And that trade uh, was most notably in such commodities as pepper. Uh, as you know, pepper is a spice that masks the uh, food which is not properly prepared. America had a, a binge of pepper trading and uh, the Salemites and Bostonians again took advantage of that as well as coffee and other commodities. And so uh, the Salem story begins with Darby's death in 1799 because his, uh, again, underlings, the, the, again, the master mariner who sailed under him, realized they had a chance to, again, step out on their own. And so in 1799, they formed the East Indian Marine Society. It was a very select group. In order to get into the society, they would have had to cross uh, Cape of Good Hope or later Cape Horn. Cape of Good Hope, it's south side of, again, the African continent. Cape Horn, again, south side of the South American continent. These were, again, the, the passages through which the wealth of distant markets would be won. And so it wasn't just any master mariner who could join. It was only this elite group. Salem also had, uh, again, the Salem Maritime Society. And that was mostly formed from captains who traded in the Caribbean and so forth. So the East Indian Marine, Marine Society was established in 1799. And 
of their three goals, one was to further navigation and knowledge. Another was to, again, take care of masters who met their fate, whose wives, whose widows would need help. And a third goal was to establish a cabinet. And the word cabinet should be read now as a museum. And these master mariners brought back goods, curiosities from across the globe. Now, these goods or curiosities would be shown uh, to the populace of Salem. And Salemites took pride in the fact that their neighbors had been the ones going distant places and introducing not only Salem to the world, but the world to Salem. And so the museum, it was established in the 1790s, it's uh, 1800s, it's got a small presence. It really took on a more major operation in 1825 with the building that still exists to this day. And this building is um, pretty much the centerpiece of what the museum is now called the Peabody Essex Museum. And if you went into that museum back in those days, it was like entering another world. Uh, it was time travel. It was uh, one where the curiosities, the uh, exotic goods, exotic ways of life were introduced to what were really provincial people. Salem is only 20 miles north of Boston, but it was, uh, it was a world of its own. And most Salem youth on these ships would be traveling globally to South America or to distant Asia before they even had chance to go into Boston. And so the East Indian Marine Society and this cabinet is the focus because the way I saw my book again unfolding, as Bill Williams had suggested, I want to look at how, again, global travel, global markets is not only going to shape America's understanding of the world, but the world's understanding of America. In fact, places like distant India and China, they often thought that Boston and Salem were separate countries unto themselves because the flag of Salem and the flag of Boston was seen more, more readily than the flag, uh, the flag of the United States. You know, again, Darby had his own flag and each company had their own ship's flags too. And so that was easily recognizable by foreign traders. So I take this Salem story you know, through the 1820s, particularly after the museum expanded and how it contributed to these goals. One of the great leaders of, of East, Indian, East Indian Marine Society was Nathaniel Baldich. And Baldich uh, is, again, known today to still many sailors because of his book, The New American Practical Navigator. It's a book that was published by the East Indian Marine Society and is still in print today because if you want to understand navigation through stars, latitude, longitude, and how to read the heavenly bodies, Bowditch was the way to do it. And so Bowditch led this, this again, um, uh, credibility to the East Indian Marine Society as it contributed to navigation, it contributed to America's uh, growing presence in foreign lands, and how uh, New Englanders and Salemites in particular took great uh, pride in what their neighbors had accomplished. Uh, the East Indian Marine Society went through a crisis, though, because um, these sailors, because of the limited requirements of membership, 
one had to cross Cape of Good Hope or Cape Horn, fewer and fewer were, were doing that. And so membership began to decline as visitorship at the museum began to increase. So there's kind of a reverse correlation between the two. Uh, but the museum declined and by the 1860s, it was in a demographic crisis, too many old men. It was in a financial crisis, not enough money coming in. And so uh, they found a benefactor, a benefactor who had been born in Danvers, who had made his money in finance, whose company in fact is going to be the predecessor for JP Morgan Chase today. Uh, and that's Peabody. And so that's where we get the Peabody, Peabody Museum today uh, is the direct descendant of the East Indian Marine Society. I tracked this Peabody Museum, uh, which was one essentially of natural history. Uh, I track it through the 1870s, 80s, 90s, up until pretty much the uh, later part of the 20th century when it became the Peabody Essex Museum. Uh, my main focus in preserving maritime America is a kind of understanding the world. And so much of my focus is on the East Indian Marine Society. But I thought the Peabody Museum was especially interesting because in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, America's understanding of uh, the particularly the distant areas of the Pacific, Polynesia, Micronesia, okay, uh, the distant Pacific and how those people developed was a, a pop culture for the day. And the Peabody Museum kind of showed that through its exhibits. So what started as a cabinet for the East Indian Marine Society became an anthropology museum for the Peabody Museum. And it was, again, another level of how Americans understand distant people, people of color, people, again, whose ancestry, whose way of life was so different than the, the modernizing trends of America, uh, how Americans understood the world then. I close this chapter looking at the Peabody Essex Museum. Uh, today, the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem is a world-class museum of art and culture. Uh, it rivals the Boston Museum of Fine Arts. Its endowment is gigantic, gigantic. Did I say gigantic? Okay. It's got money galore, and this is mentionable because it's so different than most maritime museums, which are today financially struggling. The Peabody Essex Museum has got, again, uh, such a wealth of materials that it's able to draw in philanthropists, draw, uh, draw in the art connoisseur crowd. It still shows, again, the East India Marine Hall. And so if one travels to Salem today, uh, you can go and see the building still there from 1825, 1826. You can go inside and see some of the collection in 2019, the uh, Peabody Essex Museum expanded and they put more emphasis on their early years as the East Indian Marine Society. So they're trying to re uh, kind of turn the circle back to appreciating what these master mariners and supercargoes of the 1790s had established. Uh, but it all adds to the point that when you think of this one Salem Museum, it shows the change that comes over the years. What began as a cabinet of curiosities, largely to show the 
the success of Salem masters and how the Salem population appreciated that. That cabinet had turned into an anthropology museum, which was attracting 60, 70,000 people per year in the later 19th century. And how that anthropology museum today, uh, in the latter part of the 1990s and the first years of the 21st century, has become a world-class museum of art and culture, one that is um, up there with the top, in the top ranks of American museums uh, nationally. A wonderful story how museums are able to change over the years. Oh, it's a fantastic museum. I remember being up there and I think it was 1999. They did a World Millennium Conference up there and it was my first opportunity to be up at the museum. And, and just as you said, I, I think when I read your chapter and reading what that museum looked like in the early 1800s, it, it almost sounded like the Smithsonian of America before there was a Smithsonian in some ways in, in really gathering all the material and guys like Derby and 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 the mariners that, that went around the world. I, I sailed in another life before I became an academic. I was a merchant marine for seven years and I still have my copy of Bowditch, you know, and, and to be up in Nathaniel Bowditch's home, you know, I got it on my shelf, right? You know, I, I, if I would know, I should have thought to grab it, uh, yeah. you know, but it, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a prized possession of my copy of Bowditch because, you know, it's got my notes in it. It's got everything in it. And you're exactly right. I mean, just, just uh, such a, a quintessential element in the early development of American maritime history. But as you said, you know, one of the things that happens post American revolution is, is America turns outward and, and, and ships like the Grand Turk depicted here are some of those conveyors that, that just went around the world and, and were able to bring wealth and treasure back to the United States. I always joke with my students, the, 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 the concept of risking one's life for a condiment is lost to us today. But during this period of time, you know, you'd be willing yeah. to, to go halfway around the world for some pepper. Thank you for listening to the introduction in part one of James Lindgren's Preserving Maritime America, a cultural history of the nation's great maritime museums. Join us for part two as we set sail from Salem for Buzzards Bay as we discuss the new Bedford Whaling Museum on the next NASO video and podcast.